So, assalamu alaikum, everybody. We are back with another episode of our Sira class. To start with, what we'll do is, as usual, we will do a summary of what we covered in last time's lesson. So, the majority of what we did in the third lesson was a lineage of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. So, in other words, a genealogy, his family history, if you like. And we mentioned that even if you looked throughout the whole of the Prophet Muhammad's family tree, there is no one in that family tree called Quraysh. And yet we know that the Prophet Muhammad was from the tribe of the Quraysh. So where does this name come from? We recognize, we, we found out that it's actually probably referring to one of the forefathers of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, whose name was Fihr. And Quraysh was actually just like a nickname, a laqab, um, that's the Arabic terminology for just a kind of a nickname. Um, and that the term Quraysh probably referred to one of three things, either something to do with trade, which was possible because the Quraysh were definitely merchants. They were, that was their way of making money or to gather people together. And we found out in that episode that there was one of the forefathers of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, who did gather his people together, or it could have meant one who conquers. So there was Fihr. And then one of his descendants we found out was a man called Hussein. Now he was very important, we discovered, because he actually regained the political power of the Quraysh in Mecca. So when Hussein was around, that's when the Quraysh started to become a power in Mecca. They got the political power. He instituted services for the Hujjaj. He would provide water for them, which was very, very difficult because they would have to dig wells outside of Mecca and bring the water in. Then his son, Abd Banaf, and then his son, Hashim. Now Hashim was very important because he actually created wealth amongst the Quraysh. He increased their economic power. He is the one who instituted the trade caravans to Sham, Bilad Sham in the summer and Yemen in the south in winter. We found out that Hashim married a lady in Yathrib, which actually was very, very uncommon. And uh, they had a son who, when he was born, had sort of this shock streak of white hair. And they called him Shaybat al-Hamd, which means the white streak of praise. Um, and later on, we discovered that actually his name became known as Abd al-Muttalib. And probably you've heard this name before. This was the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad So although Abd al-Muttalib grew up in the early years with his mother in Yathrib, it wasn't until his uncle al-Muttalib, who lived in Mecca, finally heard about him and he came and he reclaimed him to come back to the family in Mecca with the mother's permission, alhamdulillah. And we know that Al-Muttalib, Abd Al-Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he became one of the greatest leaders of the Quraysh, of the tribe of Quraysh. And therefore, by extension, he was one of the greatest leaders in the whole of Arabia. And 
his legacy was really um, was solidified by two major events that happened in Abdel Muttalib's life. We can say they're key events that not only were significant in the life of the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, but also they were key events that show us how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how his plan was working out, how his plan was coming into fruition to lay the ground for the coming of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, the last of all of the prophets. May Allah's peace and blessing be upon them all. So the grandfather of, grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, his legacy was based on two particular events. And hopefully, inshallah, we're going to cover both of those if we get time, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the time to cover them in this session. The first one is the redigging of the well of Zamzam. Now, most people have heard of Zamzam because people go to Mecca um, on Hajj or Umrah, inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows to go back there one day soon. Um, people will bring back Zamzam for other people to drink because there's so many benefits and we'll find out some of these benefits later on. Um, and we know that Qusay, the great, 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 great grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, the one who, who increased the political power and took over the political power of uh, Mecca when he was alive. He had to dig wells outside of Mecca, bring in the water for the Hujjaj, for the pilgrims. And this was incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult to do as well. Um, and how much easier it would have been if there had been water in Mecca. Now, we know originally the, the well of Zamzam was found, or shall I say, was discovered, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed them to discover it, um, by Ismail salam, when he was a baby. So just a quick recap of the origin of the well of Zamzam. So we know that Ibrahim salam, Abraham, peace be upon him, was commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to take his wife, Hajar salam, and their little baby son, Ismail salam, who was the only son of Ibrahim salam, at that time, um, to take them all the way from Iraq, where they lived, to Mecca, to the Valley of Mecca. Um, it was known as Becca at the time, but we now know it as Mecca. So there was nothing there, absolutely nothing. And Ibrahim Islam leaves Hajar Islam there. And Hajar Islam, we know, she goes running between the two hills of Safa and Marwa to look for some water for her baby. Otherwise her baby was going to die. And while her baby is crying, we know that, um, there's two different accounts. One say that Angel Jibreel came and instituted that well to spring up. In other accounts, we, we learned that it was when uh, the baby Ismail was sort of thrashing around with, the, with his feet, with his heels, that he created sort of a dent in the sand and, and out bubbled this water, this uh, special water. Um, and we know that up until that point, there had been no water there. So there had been nobody living there. You can't live without water. So once the water was there, then people came and people were able to live there. We know that in Yemen, which is further south to Mecca, um, the Yemenis, they'd had to leave Yemen because 
of a drought and they left and when they found that there was this valley with water in it then you know this is a great place to live now so they stayed and then there also was a second migration um, of the Yemenis because this time they had a flood so then they had to leave Mecca uh, they had to leave Yemen and they came to Mecca Mecca was a good place to be um, and we know that this well of Zamzam that was there at the time, it got covered over. And we covered this in a previous episode where there'd been some political unrest between the tribes. Um, the well got sealed up, covered over, buried after a civil war. The tribe that was in control of the well even put their treasure in the well and just buried the well and no one could find it for years for hundreds of years no one could find this well so obviously as time goes by people absolutely forget that it even existed it just becomes like a myth that you know that you kind of say to oh yes one day we think there was this well but actually nobody now really believes it they think it was just a legend that was that was made up a nice legend wouldn't it be nice if there had been this well still here, but no, you know, we think it's just fiction. We think it's just a legend that was made up. So people forget that it even existed. So now fast forward to Abdul Muttalib, which is the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And even in his time, people of Mecca, they don't know anything about the well of Zamzam. But what happens is that one night, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he has a dream. And when he recounts this, he says that something came to me. So he wasn't sure what, you know, what it was, but he, in, his, in his dream, he hears a voice and a voice says to him, go and dig up Tayyibah. Now, Tayyibah can get translated from the Arabic into something that's pure, something that's really attractive, something that you want. So he, in his dream, says to the voice, well, what is Tayyibah? But then the, the one that was talking to him in the dream left and Abdul Muttalib woke up. Okay, so that was one night. He most probably thought, gosh, that was a strange dream. Second night, he goes to sleep and he has a very, very similar dream. So in this dream, something comes to him, a voice says to him, go and dig up barrah. And barrah in Arabic to the English can get translated as the very pious, very blessed thing. Go and dig up that blessed thing. So Abdul Muttalib in his dream says, what is barrah? Same thing happens. The, the voice, the one who's speaking, leaves out of that dream and Abdul Muttalib wakes up. Third night, the third night, Abdul Muttalib again has another dream. And in this time, he's told to dig up Madnuna, which is something that is very valuable. Go and dig up that valuable thing. Same thing happens. You know, the dream ends there. He wakes up. Finally, on the fourth night, the voice says to him in the dream, go and dig up Zamzam. And he says, what is Zamzam? Now, now, if you said to a Muslim, Zamzam, you know, they'd know exactly what you meant. But remember at the time it's been buried for so long, Abdul Muttalib doesn't know 
what Zamzam is. So then the voice says to him, Zamzam is the thing that will never run out and its water is always abundant. It can give water to the largest group of people. So in other words, the Hujjaj, everybody coming can drink from this water. It is between, and now the voice tells him where to find Zamzam. It is between, and in Arabic, it, you know, into the English, it, it seems a bit strange. In the Arabic, it's between which means between like uh, feces and blood. Now, interestingly enough, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that same, that same saying, if you like, it's kind of an expression to say that something is between means actually that it's really pure because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about this in the Quran where he describes how he provides us milk to drink from the cow and it is between you know the two parts of the body where these things can exist but yet it comes out pure for us to drink so obviously we know that now but at the time it was an expression that was understood to mean something that is very pure so in classical arabic it's like saying that something is incredibly pure. So this voice says to, to Abdul Muttalib in the dream, you will find it. In other words, go and look for Zamzam where you see, and now a bit more specification, anthills and crows pecking on the ground. So this is quite specific now. So Abdul Muttalib, he goes and he thinks, right, I'm going to go do this. And he goes and he finds this area where there's anthills and there's crows. It's not far from the Kaaba. It's right near the Kaaba. Um, and he sees this and he starts to dig and he takes his son with him. He only has one son at the time, his son Al-Haris. And he takes him with him and they find that place and they start digging. So they're digging and digging. And suddenly as they're digging, they come across, you know, you can imagine the sound as a spade hits something that's metal and he finds those pure gold swords, those, you know, those swords that are encrusted with jewels and silver and all this treasure that was buried. So then they keep on digging and they find gold coins and, you know, all this, all this kind of wealth keeps on digging and finally he gets to the well. But you can imagine, it's like somebody taking a spade and digging in your town center. People are going to notice, and the Kaaba was very much like in the center, and they used, they used to use it as a central meeting place anyway. People would meet by the Kaaba, they would sit, they would discuss. So all this digging is attracting attention from the people around. And not just the digging, but when Abdul Muttalib comes and finds what he finds, he starts calling out takbir. He starts, him and his son, both saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, because they're overwhelmed by what they're finding. So obviously there's the digging going on. There's all this shouting of takbir going on. It is creating attention amongst the people. So the people congregate. And they realize what they're seeing. And they realize, I mean, can you imagine? This is like something like 300, how many years later? 
and they see that that story that was told to them that they thought was just a fable, just a myth, just a legend. This is actually a reality. This water actually exists. So that's, you know, that's important. The leaders, they all come, all the leaders of all the tribes, they come and they gather and they say, this is the well of our forefathers. This is the well of our forefather, Ismail alayhi salam. In other words, this belongs to all of us because we're all descended from Ismail alayhi salam. So we all want a piece of this. We want a share in this. We all have a right over this. So it becomes like a kind of, you know, well, it's, you know, I'm more important. I want to be the one that digs up this well. So there's all this kind of ego that comes out at this time. Um, and Abdul Muttalib, although he's a very, is a you know, very honest, decent man, he's not going to get pushed around. And he says to them, absolutely not. This well and where to find it was shown directly to me in my dream. So this is my responsibility to dig it up. Um, and obviously you can imagine people start arguing. No one's just going to agree with him. They're like, no, 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 this is, we want to be doing this too. But, and at the time, Abdul Muttalib actually, he makes, he makes a, a promise to Allah. And he says, oh Allah, if you give me 10 sons, I will sacrifice one of them for you because he only had one son, which means he's only got a certain, he's only got one like bodyguard, one bit of muscle power. He needs more muscle power to be able to say, look, this is, these are my sons and you back off everybody because, you know, this is my right to be digging this up. So he feels a bit weak at that point. And he makes this uh, vow, he makes this promise to Allah to say, if you give me 10 sons, I will sacrifice one of them for you. And that's important later on. We'll get back to that later on. So anyway, they're arguing, but they reach a compromise. So Abdul Muttalib and the leaders of the other tribes, they reach a compromise and they say, okay, we won't fight about this. We won't start drawing our swords on each other. What we will do is we'll go and ask this priestess. Remember they had they had a very different understanding of spirituality. They were worshipping idols. But amongst their kind of spiritual hierarchy, you had somebody that they considered to be more holy, if you like. So they said, well, you know, there's this, this uh, very wise woman, priestess, far away. That person is going to make the decision for us. And whatever she decides, then we will abide by that. So they set off on this journey, Abdul Muttalib and some of these leaders. Remember, they're all related to each other as well. They're sort of distant cousins of each other. And they set off on this journey. And on the way, they get lost. And when you're lost, you're, you're going to take more time on your journey because you're not going as directly as you could. And their provisions start to run out. And more importantly, their water runs out. And obviously, if you have no water anywhere, but let alone a desert, but anywhere, you are going to die of thirst. So what they, what they did is they said that what we will do is we will actually dig 
our own graves. Now that sounds that sounds quite shocking to us, doesn't it? But if you think about it, a lot of their travel was through deserts, and travel at the time was not easy. Even now, when we travel, we say, "Oh gosh, I had to travel from you know 200 miles or something," and I it just made me so tired and. They're traveling by camel and they're going through the desert and they have to take the provisions. There are no service stations. There's no pit stops for them. They have to take everything with them. And if they run out, then that's it. So this was actually not an, um, it, it, was, it was reasonably common for this to happen. So what they actually did was they said, we will dig our own graves. And when we feel that we are starting to, pass out and we're not going to last much longer then we'll get into the graves and then you know at least it's not that difficult we don't want to be you know eaten by wild animals and you know don't want our bodies to be treated in that way so we'll lie down in these graves and then Abdel Muttalib himself was starting to feel very faint and very unwell and as he starts to dig the grave, just like the others were digging their graves, he strikes water. So he strikes water, and obviously this water then saves everybody's life. So at this point, you can't ignore it anymore. You can't ignore the fact that Abdel Muttalib is the one who is chosen to dig the well of Zamzam. So the other leaders that are there on this journey, they say, you know what, it's fine. We understand now, the one who showed you where this water is, the water as they're traveling through the desert, must have been the one who told you where that well of Zamzam was. So we're not going to even bother going and seeing this priestess. We understand that you are the one who needs to dig up this well. So this is how the well of Zamzam was re-established. And Abdul Muttalib, you know, he made sure that this was for everybody. He, you know, he he built up the well, built the wall around it so that, you know, everyone could use it. And he made a dua when he was remaking this well. And he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show him and guide him to what Allah wanted him to do with all of this wealth and all of this, the, the water that he'd found. So you can see that Abdul Muttalib was a very spiritual man. He was a very devout man. He did truly believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And on a previous episode, we spoke about the Hunafa, the ones who did not worship idols and only worshipped one Allah. And so many scholars have actually said that Abdul Muttalib also was amongst the Hunafa, the ones who never worshipped idols. Um, so the treasure that he'd found when they were digging up um, the well of Zamzam, that you know, the, all those gold coins and gold swords and jewels and everything. Well, the gold, he took it and he melted it down and he actually made a door for the Kaaba with it. And you know, that that's that's something that is a, a good thing. It's not something that's reprehensible. He actually did something with all that and made a door for the Kaaba. So the story or the recounting of digging up the well of Zemzem, although it happened 
all those years ago, it's still actually so relevant to us today. If anyone has been, inshallah, is going to Mecca on Umrah or Hajj, you know, Zamzam is part of what we do as our rites of worship when we go to Mecca. So it's still completely relevant to us even today. And there's actually a hadith, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, who said that the water of Zamzam serves whatever purpose it is drunk for. Whenever you drink it, it will serve whatever intention you had. So that's why there, there is etiquette of drinking the well, uh, drinking the water of Zamzam. And this is actually from um, a narration of Ibn Abbas, may Allah be pleased with him, that when somebody was talking to him and asking him about drinking the well of Zamzam, I keep saying Zamzam, well of Zamzam, the water of Zamzam, um, he said, face the Kaaba, say Bismillah, and then take three breaths and drink to your full. So what does that mean? That means we face Qibla when we drink from uh, Zamzam water. We say Bismillah, which we would do anyway, because Bismillah before everything. And then what does that mean, take three breaths? That means don't just glug it all down in one go. You know, drink it in a measured, um, in sort of a measured way with etiquette. And then we should drink to our full. And that is definitely something that has, you know, been passed down to us, that understanding of drinking to our full. And then you thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to, when it says to drink to your full, it means because this is blessed. This water is blessed. It has blessing in it. And when you hear something like that, and you hear the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad it's part of understanding your own kind of spiritual level. How convinced are you that this hadith is true? Now, it is a true hadith. So it's we need to kind of check ourselves and say, well, do we just drink and go, okay, that was a nice little sip. I think I've had enough. Or do we understand that this is part of blessing that we are, we are drinking in and we should be drinking to our full. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, says the water of Zamzam benefits you. So we need to be convinced that that is true. Which, you know, like we live in a society actually where it's very easy to become skeptical. I mean, we live in a society where even so much of society even doubts whether God exists. So we need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap of being sort of spiritually skeptical, if you like. So back to Abdul Muttalib. We know he was the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, and he was involved, he was responsible, part of the redigging of the well of Zamzam. So what did he do with this water? Well, they used this water to give to the Hujjaj, the pilgrims that came. And even though Zamzam was there, they didn't have to dig any wells outside of Mecca anymore. They didn't have to transport the water into Mecca. It's still a very big undertaking for them to do because you had to have the finances to to actually provide all of the all of the things that you would need to give the water to the hujjaj. You know, you need the containers. You maybe set up tents where the containers were. You'd have to physically serve the water because this was taken on as um, as a responsibility 
by the family of Abdul Muttalib. So after Abdul Muttalib had passed away, actually it was his son, Abu Talib, who obviously we will um, speak a lot more about him later on in the Sira lessons. Um, it was Abu Talib that inherited taking on the responsibility of providing water for the Hujjaj. So the first year that he actually took on that responsibility, and he wasn't a very wealthy man. It's not something that, you know, okay, it wasn't in his portion, but it wasn't in his personality either. He, he wasn't somebody that really had many riches. So all of his money was actually used in that first year to, to provide water to the Hujjaj. So the next year, when the, his responsibility came around again, he actually had to borrow money from his brother Abbas, because Abbas was rich. So he borrowed 10,000 silver coins, and he used that to finance giving water to the Hujjaj. And he used it all. So again, the next year, he went to his brother Abbas and said, look, can I borrow some more money? I, you know, I've got the responsibility of, of providing water to the pilgrim, pilgrims. So you can see how this is going to go because Abdul, uh, Abu Talib is never going to have the money to pay his brother back. So his brother actually makes a deal with him and says, OK, forget the debt that you owe me, but I'm going to buy the right to that well because it's a massive honor to be providing water to every pilgrim that comes. And this was passed on from father to son, um, you know, and, until we went into kind of the, the leadership of the, of the Umayyads. So before we move on and talk about the other important um, event that occurred in the life of Abdul Muttalib that made him so well known and so uh, respected as a leader, let's look at, let's have a think about what was the religious significance of the digging, of the, you know, the, the re-digging of the well of Zemzem. Because you might look at it and go, oh, that's nice, you know, that's great. They didn't have to go and get water from outside Mecca. That made life a lot easier for them. But it wasn't just that. Because if you think about it, the origins of the well of Zemzem where, where was the origin from? From Ibrahim salam, and his son Ismail salam. And the only prophet then that comes from the line of Ismail salam, is the prophet Muhammad And this unearthing of the well takes place just, it takes place just before the prophet Muhammad salam. So in the in the life of his grandfather. And this is like, almost like a foretelling, a, a sign of the coming of the Prophet Muhammad because just as Zamzam is a legacy of Ibrahim Ibrahim is the one with Ismail when they built the Kaaba, they made the dua to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send a prophet from amongst them, in other words, from Ismail Islam's line to these people that will actually guide them to the truth. And so that belief in Allah, that legacy of Ibrahim Islam, you can see it's coming back again. Zamzam has come back. And this is a symbolism that shows us that this is the Prophet Muhammad is about to arrive. Okay, so 
that was the first major event that we can talk about that is linked into the, the coming of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu The second event that we're going to talk about is actually the, the army of the elephants. And quite possibly people have heard about this already. There is a surah in the Quran, Surah Tafil, which is the, the chapter of the elephant or the surah of the elephant. Um, so in that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us how he dealt with the army of the elephant. But we're going to sort of backtrack a bit. We're not going to talk about what happened straight away, you know, when the when the army came. Let's see how that whole thing evolved. How did that event come about? So the invasion of the army of the elephant. This is the same year that the Prophet Muhammad was born. So we know from narrations from two hadith actually that the prophet muhammad was born in the year of the elephant it was called the year of the elephant because remember they didn't have a calendar um, and the calendar only came about at the time of amr and um, the the second khalif after the the passing of the prophet muhammad so they didn't have a calendar and people would mark the year by some big event and you would say, oh, yes, this happened in the year of the flood, let's say, for example. And if you wanted to go backwards, you'd say, oh, well, this happened two years before the year of the flood or this happened two years after the year of the flood. So you'd use some main event and you'd, you'd kind of like create a timeline like that. So the year of the elephant is when the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was born. He was born about two months after this invasion happened. So. Okay, what was the scenario? What was the situation? Well, Yemen, that's in the south of, uh, of the peninsula of Arabia, it was, had a heavily Christian influence. But then what happened was that uh, there was some fighting and uh, a Jewish uh, leadership took over. But then the Abyssinians, who were just across the water, um, they, they sent an army to free the people of Yemen from the oppression that they were facing because they were Christian and they went to help their Christian brothers in faith. So when the Christians won their freedom, they were governed by a ruler. Now, he wasn't a military man, but he was quite a spiritual person. You know, this was kind of like um, a spiritual freedom that had been won by the Christians. Um, but the head of the army at the time was a man whose name was Abraha. Now, Abraha is a name most probably you'll have heard before. He was the head of the army and he didn't particularly like the way the new governor was governing because, well, he wasn't kind of leadership material. And Abraha decided that he could do a better job. He led a coup and he took over the govern governorship of Yemen. So now Abraha is the governor of Yemen. And Abraha wanted Yemen to get back to its original gl glory. He had seen that, you know, the drought that had happened, the flood that had happened, people had left Mecca, people had left and gone to Mecca. So it's like, it's almost like a brain drain. You know, people are leaving Yemen 
and they're going uh, north to Mecca and Mecca is flourishing and he feels like, well, Yemen should get back its glory. And he was a very intelligent man and he knew that he needed to attract people to Yemen like people are being attracted to go to Mecca. So he says to himself, you know what? People are going there because they say, well, the Kaaba is there and the Kaaba is special. I'm going to make something so special here in Yemen that people are going to come here. No one's going to want to leave. And because he's Christian, he builds an amazing cathedral. I mean, it's, it's massive and it's glamorous. He uses so much wealth that goes into building this cathedral. I mean, they even say that it had stained glass and that's not really something that you would have expected at that time in, in Yemen. And so he makes this place like an attraction and he wants it to become so famous that everybody's gonna to come to Yemen. And he sends a message to the Abyssinian king who is kind of his patron and says, you know what, I'm not going to rest until I can bring more people to visit this cathedral than all these people who keep going to Mecca, to the Kaaba. So he originally, all he's doing is he's trying to build something that he thinks will be in direct competition with the Kaaba. People will be so amazed by the splendor of this cathedral that they'll want to come to Yemen and you know, forget the Kaaba, no one's gonna go there anymore. So the word spreads, the word spreads. This is what Abraha has done in Yemen. And so the Arab tribes, they get to hear about this. And one particular man from one particular tribe from Abu Kanana, that's what the name of the tribe, he goes to this cathedral, he waits until nobody's around and Basically, he relieves himself there um, and he spreads all his toiletry all over the walls of this cathedral. You can imagine that when Abraha sees this, I mean, this is his baby. He's been creating this and he's been putting all his energy and all his effort and all the wealth into this making of this cathedral. And then he sees it sort of you know, vandalized in this way, he is absolutely livid. He's so angry. And, and I think that's important because it's a lesson for us. He didn't, first of all, say to himself, I'm going to go and knock down the Kaaba. He just said, I'm going to be in direct competition. I'm going to make this amazing cathedral. People are going to come and see this cathedral. He actually hadn't said, I'm going to go and knock down the Kaaba. But when Somebody came to his house, his place, and vandalized it. It's like, you know, you could consider yourself to be a really peaceful, calm person until someone pushes you. And then your natural reaction is to push them back again. So that's basically what happened in this situation. And this is, this is really important because we can see what happens when you disrespect somebody else's place or somebody else's religion even and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns us about this in the Quran Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says do not disrespect their gods they will disrespect Allah without realizing the severity of what they've done so you know okay we 
when somebody asks us about Islam, obviously we speak about it, we speak the truth about what we, um, what we believe, but we don't do it in a way that's nasty, that in a way that is disrespectful to how somebody else might be living or how somebody else, the way somebody else believes. You're just gonna win yourself enemies like that. You're not, you're not going to open up anybody's heart to the truth. So you can see that, so for Abraha, and also the man who did this, the man who went and kind of really, you know, was quite disgusting and spread everything around. Um, he didn't keep it a secret. He actually bragged about it. And so everybody knew, everybody knew that this man was an Arab from an Arab tribe and he'd come and done this to this, uh, this cathedral. So then at this point, Abraha said, you know what? And he actually promises, he swears by God, that he is going to destroy the Kaaba, you know, you, you know, you could say, well, okay, I understand that because they came and vandalized his cathedral. What's he going to do? He's going to go back and say, well, you, you're going to do that to me as well. I'm going to do that to you too. So he actually gathers 60,000 soldiers. That's massive. And they march to Mecca, not just human soldiers, but remember, he's originally from uh, he's originally from Africa, from Ethiopia, modern day Ethiopia. Um, he's you know Abyssinia is the is the name that uh, the country was known by then. He's originally from there, uh, and then he came over to Yemen and and governed in Yemen. So he's originally from there. So he knew that elephants could be used to. Uh, as, as kind of like, almost like bulldozers, basically, or tanks. You know, like you have a tank in, uh, in an army now, these days. That's basically what an elephant was like at that time. It would just come and run over everything because it's not like the houses that we've got now. They're not going to be big, modern, you know, sort of brick structures. They're just going to be just your general kind of hut and an elephant can come and knock that over. So he actually, he hires, if you like, or he gets into his army. S some say between eight to 20 elephants, maybe about 12, but it, some have said between eight and 12, 20 elephants, so like eight and 20 tanks, if you like. Um, and not just that, but if you think about it, the Arabs had never seen an elephant before. You have elephant, elephants, did I say elephants? You have elephants in Africa, and you have elephants in India. You don't have elephants in Arabia. And so the Arabs had never seen an elephant before. And people are hearing about this coming towards them. This army is marching with these scary creatures, uh, massive, scary creatures. And people hear about it. Some of them, alhamdulillah, they try and fight him. They try and stand up and, you know, and. They, they're saying, no, you can't come. You can't come and knock down the Kaaba. The Kaaba is sacred for all the Arabs. And they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to defend their honor, even though actually some of them could most really understand where Abraha is coming from, because, you know, it's pretty disgusting what that man did do to his cathedral. Um, so on the way, two uh, tribal leaders that try and stand up to Abraha and, and try and 
um, stop his army and try and gather together some of the other tribes and fight, um, they get taken as prisoners of war. I mean, Abraha was going to kill them, but they convince Abraha and say, look, you know, we could be useful to you. You've got to travel through Arabia. So, you know, we think it might be better if you just let us live. So Abraha lets them live. He's an intelligent man. He thinks, yeah, they might actually come into useful for me. So he lets them live and he keeps them as prisoners of war. But pretty soon, Abraha's reputation is going before the army and people stop fighting. They're like, oh my gosh, we haven't got a chance. He just keeps knocking everybody down. Doesn't matter what defense we put up. He's got those massive bulldozer tank-like animals, elephants. Um, and actually people don't want to fight anymore because they saw what happened. So they just let him pass by. And he actually gets, this is very interesting. He gets to Ba'if, which is um, one of the towns if you like, not far from Mecca. And the leader there, the leader of the tribe, not only does he not actually put up a fight, but he actually says, oh yes, you know, you are, um, you are our king, we will obey you. And we completely agree with what you're doing. And actually we have nothing to do with the Kaaba because remember they had their idols, they had their own idol there. Um, they, one of their, their main idols there was Lert. And they had built a temple for Lert, and you know, um, so they said, "No, you know, we're not going to fight you." And actually, what we'll do is we'll provide a guide for you to get you there safely. So you can see that some people actually stood up to Abraha and his army. Some people just like you, you can just carry on going. We're not going to say anything. And some people actually helped him out. So you'll have different kinds of people, and and this is what we see. Um, and actually, the the man who uh was was the one who was the guide later on when he died people were just disgusted with him and actually you know they used they used his name almost like a swear word and they said oh my gosh his you know you are as treacherous as this man and then they would say his name Abu Rihan, um almost like a slur word because they thought how can someone turn their back not just on their people, but also turn their back on the house of Allah and actually take the army there. So they, you know, they were absolutely disgusted with him. So, okay, so now Abraha is at the outskirts of Mecca and he sends one of his envoys, he sends, you know, his spokesperson in to speak to the leader there um, to tell them, you know, we're not here to kill you. We're just here to knock down the Kaaba. So you just move aside, we'll knock down the Kaaba and you know, no one's gonna get hurt. So one of the things that happened actually was the army that was with Abraha. Um, along the way, they would take opportunities to take whatever they could from the tribes that they were passing through because it's, you know, it's kind of more, more for them. Um, and they actually had taken 200 camels that belonged to Abdul Muttalib because they were out in, uh, in the pasture uh, where they were and they had got taken. So when the envoy comes and said, let me speak to your leader in Mecca, everybody just points to Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad was the undisputed leader of Mecca. 
So Abdul Muttalib says, well, I'd like to speak to your leader. I'd like to speak to Abraha. So they organize for, for uh, Abdul Muttalib to go and speak to Abraha. And when Abdul Muttalib walks in to the court, if you like, of where Abraha is sitting, Abraha is actually quite impressed with him because Abdul Muttalib, we know, was a very tall, very respectful, dignified looking man. And it would have been too much really to ask Abdul Muttalib to come and sit on the throne, if you like, with Abraha. So Abraha actually comes down and sits on the floor with Abdul Muttalib, um, you know, gives him food, drink, you know, a bit of hospitality kind of thing. And, and then uh, says to him, OK, I, I'm, I'm listening. You, you know why I'm here, Abraha says to him. You know, what have you got to say? And he's quite impressed with Abdul Muttalib at this point. So Abdul Muttalib says, well, I have 200 camels and your soldiers took them and I want them back. This is not what Abraha was expecting. I mean, he's thinking, I'm coming to knock down your holy sanctuary, your sacred house. You say it's the house of your God. And you tell me you want your camels back. So he's must be thinking, what? And actually he says, he says, when he says to Abdul Muttalib, when you walked in through, you know, and came here, I was really impressed by you. But now you've just said this about the camels and I'm just, yeah, okay, fine. You obviously don't even understand what I'm going to do. You don't, you don't even respect the fact that this, you say, is the house of Allah, and I'm coming to knock it down. Um, you, you say this is you know, part of your identity, your religion, um, and you're not even going to say anything about the Kaaba, and you're going to talk to me about camels. So Abdul Muttalib at that point says something that, it's like, it's, it's amazing what he says. He says, you know what? I am the owner of my camels, so that they're my responsibility. The house has an owner, has a lord, and he will take care of it and defend it. Um, because he had said, even when the messenger came to him, the envoy, he said, this is Allah's house. And if Allah wants to defend it, then he will. If he wants Abraha to come and reach the Kaaba, then there's nothing we can do to stop him. So Abdul Muttalib was very intelligent, very confident. And even, even though Abraha was a bit taken aback when he started talking about camels before, he's affected by what he said. Abdul Muttalib is basically saying, well, you know, you're about to go to war. You're about to knock down the house that has a lord. That lord is Allah. And Abraha gets angry, says, well, you're not going to be able to stop me. Have you seen my army? Have you seen my elephants? Have you seen what I can do? And Abdul Muttalib just says, okay, it's between you and Allah. So Abraha, you know, they give up the conversation. Abraha gives him back his camels. And uh, Abdul Muttalib goes back to the leaders of, of, the, of the tribes in Mecca. Originally, they had asked him to go and speak to Abraha, go and see if you can reason with this man. Abdul Muttalib said, there's no reasoning with him. He is going, he's coming. And 
we need to get out of here. We need to leave Mecca. So they all leave Mecca and go up into the hills. They evacuate Mecca because they know the army is coming. But before they go, Abdul Muttalib actually, he goes and he holds on to the, to the, there's like a, the door of the cab is like, has a, a ring, like a handle. So he holds on to that circular handle and he, and he pleads and he says, oh Allah, stop them because anyone will defend their property if it is attacked. So Allah, please defend your house. And he understands that the Kaaba, everything is controlled by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he wants to protect the Kaaba, nothing can come and touch the Kaaba. So they, and he also says that, you know, that it's not just the house that they're attacking. They're attacking, they're attacking you, oh Allah. Because remember, this is like one religion against the Christian religion that has now become uh, split up into Trinity that they're attacking the place of worshipping one true God. So he says, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, please defend your house. So what happens is, remember I said that there were two leaders that were taken as prisoner of war when they're coming through Arabia, the army. So one of these leaders, he has been watching the elephant breeder, caretaker, whatever, you call him, um, and he's been watching how he deals with these elephants. So he goes and he literally lifts up the ear of the elephant and says to him, you're about to attack the place that belongs to my creator and your creator. So sit down and don't move. In other words, don't go there. And subhanAllah, this is I mean, even I'm talking about it and I've read this so many times and I've spoken about it so many times, but even now it just sends shivers up and down my spine because that is exactly what the elephant did. He sat down and he would not move. And the, you know, the elephant breeder is very confused. Abraha, this is the biggest of all the elephants. This is the one that Abraha was himself riding. Uh, and Abraha is getting angry because he's saying, come on, We've got to go and attack. We've got to go and knock the Kaaba down. We haven't got time for this. What's going on with this elephant? So the elephant breeder, um, he says, okay, we'll try, we'll try something else. So he, he manages to get the elephant to stand. Mahmoud, his name is, manages to get him to stand. And anytime he faces him away from the direction of the Kaaba, then the elephant will walk. But when he faces him, you know, kind of manages to turn him round and bring him to face the Kaaba, the elephant sits down and will not move. So, I mean, they say that they were, you know, literally they were hitting him, doing all sorts of stuff to try and get this elephant to budge, but he just wouldn't. So, okay, so Abraha still says, fine, leave the elephant here. I'm going, I'm going to go attack the Kaaba. So we'll find out what happens when he actually gets there in the next session because we've run out of time now um and i'm going to leave it there so it's a bit of a cliffhanger isn't it the elephant doesn't come with them but they're still there they're about to go and knock the Kaaba down but i don't think it's a spoiler really to tell you that it doesn't happen because i think most people know that it doesn't happen but we'll find out exactly what happens next time inshallah <laughs>